I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Approximately 5,000 service members identify as Muslim. Yet there are fewer than 20 Muslim chaplains to serve them all. The Three Chaplains documentary was seven years in the making, highlighting the role and impact three Muslim chaplains have on the lives of ordinary servicemen and women. In order to capture the experiences and stories inside the military, the documentary filmmakers needed support and access from the Department of Defense. But the filmmakers insist this is not propaganda, and they point to the content which they say offers an unvarnished view that includes significant challenges and the scrutiny Muslim chaplains endure in the military and in their respective communities. Producer Kimberly Winston brings us a conversation with filmmakers David Washburn and Rozzy Joffrey. David Washburn and Rozzy Joffrey, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Hello, this is David. Hi, this is Rozzy. How did the two of you become interested in making a film about military chaplains? This project was developed from a previous short film project that profiled Muslim veterans in the post-9-11 era. So that project was really looking at what are the experiences that um, Muslims had serving in the U.S. military during this rise in in Islamophobia, during these conflicts in uh, Muslim-majority countries, and how they like how they navigated all of that. Mm. Through that project, I was introduced to Muslim chaplains. And previous to that project, I really couldn't say I knew much about what chaplains did, nor what Muslim chaplains in the U.S. military did, if, or, or even if they existed. So I was introduced to, to chaplains who were on active duty, and it presented a challenge as a filmmaker to think about how do I work with them as storytellers? Because you know, if you're working with anybody who's an employee of the Department of Defense, you need to go through uh, their public affairs. And fortunately, we submitted an application. There was a, you know, a very receptive public affairs officer on the other side of that application who saw something meaningful in our vision. And our vision was really just an exploration of these religious leaders' lives in the U.S. military and how they were supporting service members, how they were educating about Islam, how they were working in an interreligious, you know, manner across religious lines with other chaplains and other service members. I think the the crux of the of the decision to work with them was around this idea that Muslim chaplains sit in the middle of all of these in- interesting storylines. You find issues of uh, religious freedom for Muslims and for religious minorities in the US military. You find issues around diversity in the US military. They can articulate all of these interesting storylines and then reflect back on civilian life. And Rosie, how did you get involved? I, I got involved with the project after David and I met through the Islamic Scholarship Fund, which is a Muslim organization that funds films and documentaries. And so both of our respective projects were receiving awards at the time. And I had made a previous film about, it's called Hemtramic USA. It's about life and democracy in America's first Muslim majority city. And so I was really interested in Muslims involved in various American institutions and getting involved in the civic process and taking leadership roles. And as David mentioned, there's this really great intersection that chaplains sit at. Tell us about the three chaplains that you follow in the film. Who are they? 
the first person we see on screen is now Major Rafael Lantigua. He's a um, chaplain in the U.S. Air Force, and we follow him from his work in basic military training at Lackland Air Force Base to the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado and, and beyond. When I decided to become a Muslim chaplain, I knew that there were going to be associated dangers with that because of just the nature of what's going on in the world. The news footage continues to uh, propagate this idea that Muslims are terrorists, Muslims are the bad guy, the boogeyman, you know, they're coming to get you. We also profile the first Muslim chaplain to reach the rank of colonel in the U.S. military. That's Khalid Shabazz. And we follow him from his work in Washington. There's a scene where it takes place in Hawaii. And we follow him to Texas. Sometimes I don't even have to say anything because they're just working through things. I think it's imperative to have somebody to listen and not judge them, to be able to have somebody to just say, I, I see, I see where you're coming from. I have some of the same issues. Your faith is not going to stop me from coming to help you. Your gender is not going to stop me. I don't care what you call yourself. Sir, Sir, Sir it's in my DNA to help you. Thank you, brother. We will cross paths in the future. And, and then we also profile the first woman to become the Muslim chaplain in the U.S. military. Her name is Saleha Jabin. And she's an aspiring chaplain in the beginning of the film. And then throughout the film, you see if she actually makes it to break this barrier. I'm a Muslim woman. And if I'm going to be in the military, I would also need um, spiritual support. I want to step up to the plate and say, hey, there is a void here. We need that. We have female Muslim service members, and this need is not being fulfilled. I think it's one of the things that may surprise viewers who perhaps don't know much about the American Muslim community and the American Muslim experience. But I think they'll be surprised to see this range of diversity. The three characters come from very, such very different backgrounds. Raphael being Afro-Latino, perhaps the fastest growing Muslim American community, Khalid Shabazz being African American, and Saleh Hajabin being an immigrant from India. Islam is the most diverse religion in the United States. And I think that these three chaplains reflect uh, a lot of that reality as well, and who they are, their backgrounds, their stories. And so I think one of the things that sticks out in that point is that the diversity we see on screen cuts against the stereotype that Muslims are foreigners who come from foreign countries. Of course, some of us are, but Islam is integral and uniquely intertwined with the American cultural fabric. You know, it's very interesting. You said this is a very American story, and I agree with you. What struck me was how much time all three chaplains spend explaining what Islam is to not just recruits, but people with a lot of experience in the military. I don't get the sense that the Christian chaplains have to do that so much. Their day-to-day -day job is, is not religious education classes. They do that more maybe on a weekly basis. Their day-to-day -day job is just taking care of all service members of all backgrounds, ensuring that their mental, spiritual, emotional health is in a good place. But they do, do, they do conduct religion education classes, no doubt. And I think we want to bring some religious literacy messages through in the film for a general audience that's going to see this on PBS. And that, that, those same lessons apply within the military. We wanted to show 
what they were dealing with. For me, it was still surprising that after some pretty deep engagement with, and that's a charitable word, with Muslim-majority countries over the last 20 years, that there are those that still have some really basic questions about what Islam is and who Muslims are. But as Chaplain Rafael Antinqua says in one of the religion education classes that he's conducting for very, this is for younger trainees. These are like 18, 19 year old kids. He's like, look, come in here. There's no wrong questions. If, if we're going to get past this ignorance, as he puts it, we have to um, be willing to open up and ask whatever questions on our hearts or on our minds. And so I'm, I'm here to answer that for you because there's, there's an overall lack of religious literacy in this country. It's a kind of experience that I think we've all had, regardless of what line of work we're in. We're often um, expected to be uh, representatives of our faith and our community to explain things to people. And so I think it's just one thing that a lot of Muslim viewers will relate to. It's, it's a pretty common experience. You know, and some people don't want to go through that. And one thing that is not in the film that we tried to work in, but it just it just didn't quite find the place, is that there are thousands of quote hidden Muslims in the U.S. military who do not do not declare their faith on um, you know upon entry to the military. You're not required to declare your faith, and they I think a lot of them have stepped back from from publicly talking about their faith, one out of a sense that they don't want to take on that role on a day to day basis. They are perhaps fearful of discrimination or Islamophobia, perhaps thinking it may it may hold them back from promotion, all ho- all hosts of things. In speaking to chaplains in the film and speaking to other Islamic lay leaders that can you know lead prayer on on bases, they'd often be handed a sheet by a commander saying, you know, here's the 10 people that are taking time off to come to, you know, Friday prayer. Here's 10 people and, and 20 people show up and they're like, they're like, what's, go- what's going on here? And they talk to people, they find out they're Muslim. It's lunchtime. They're like, yeah, I don't, I, I don't tell people I'm coming, but I come because this is important to me. So that is the thing. And I think part of what Razi's articulating is that some of those people don't want to take on that, that conversation on a day-to-day basis. They just want to go do their thing and, and, and that's it. There is this beautiful scene in the film where Chaplain Shabazz says no matter how many medals he receives, he always has to justify his place in the military. And after the Fort Hood shooting uh, in 2009, he was questioned. I'm always in this this quagmire um, where you got to prove yourself that you're not what people think. It's a weight that's... Uh, ever present that after a while it subsides and then it subsides and it subsides. But I do come home and say, oh, my God, it really just irks me for every time somebody introduced me to say that I'm the Muslim chaplain. Like nobody says. This is the Catholic chaplain, you know, this is the Protestant chaplain. It's always us and the Jewish chaplain. This is the Jewish chaplain or this is the I, I I'll tell you that because it drives me nuts. It categorizes me. It puts me in a box. It's like being African-American. Oh, here's my black friend. No, you wouldn't do that. You say, hey, there's Khaled. Right. So now why do you have to introduce me by my religion? So being a Muslim is lonely. It's very lonely. In the military world. It's very lonely. Like it is a lonely, lonely place. That's true. Saleha says when she joined the military, 
Her Muslim friends asked her, why would you want to be a part of a system that is hell-bent on destroying your brothers and sisters? And at one point, Khalid's wife says, it is very lonely to be a Muslim in the military. How do you understand what drove these two men and this one young woman to take up that kind of a life, if if it is that hard and that lonely. I think what you're pointing out is like one of the central tensions of the film. It's what drew both of us to this work. It's that, you know, the chaplains in the film are having to navigate so many different perspectives and judgments about who they are. And many of those judgments are false. Many of those judgments come from within the military community, many come from within the Muslim community, many come from, you know, outside in the civilian community. For Razi and I, what was interesting about making this film, not having come from military backgrounds or having family or friends in the military, it's just kind of learning how people make sense of that. Because I think for many of us, you know, you'd think, well, if it's that kind of challenge, if it's, if it's that complicated, why would you continue serving? And I think when you see the film, you kind of figure out for yourself why these people keep doing what they do. I mean, you get a very clear sense in the film that this is more than a job. It is a calling for these people. They are deeply committed to this work. I think as they are all in their own way articulate in the film, they understand that despite what has occurred over the last 20 years since 9-11, there's the need for chaplains to be conducting healing work and uh, religious leadership work in the military. That's their calling. You're, you're right in a sense. And they, they all feel like if they weren't there, who would be there to, um, to help out? And, and they're like, it doesn't matter your opinions about all of this stuff. The fact of the matter is there's 5,000 plus Muslim service members in the U.S. In the US military, and they want to see chaplains there to be looking out for them. Mm. I think one of the most important scenes in the film is when uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Sharida Hussein is mentoring Saliha and just, you know, sharing some advice and reflecting back after 30 plus years of service, you know, in her own career and just articulates that she probably wouldn't do it again. I wasn't successful in becoming a Muslim chaplain because of timing. It was 2004, 2005 um, when I petitioned the military, and we had just invaded Iraq. People were seeing the wars against Islam. But I am so happy that you've answered the call, um, because you're number two that I'm mentoring to um, break that barrier. Doing the right thing always, whether somebody's watching or not, that is the core of my religion, and that is what military operates on. We uphold the, the value of serving humanity, regardless of any affiliation, as Muslims, and that's what military does. We are there to protect and serve. I, I appreciate that, and I understand that. But um, having retired now, and having been through this longest war that our nation has been in, there's been a lot of horrible actions by our military personnel. And I just say, see the glass half full sometimes, and it's also just, it's important to see it half empty and not be so idealistic. I give you that piece of advice after having been through 35 years of military service. I don't think I would join the military today. 
And so it is hard for me to say that to you. But at the same time, I'm so happy that you've answered the call to break that barrier. Because when you break it, you break it for all of us. So, um, inshallah. There's really ethical issues that she's grappling with, but that reflects the sense of ambivalence and mistrust and, I guess, lack of support for Muslims being in the military. And so she's articulating that tension where a lot of people in the American Muslim community disagree or don't support uh, Muslims serving in, in, in the military. And so I think that's another layer of complexity that um, Khalid, uh, Rafael, and Saliha have to grapple with. There's that very gripping scene in the film where Sharita says, when I wear my military uniform, it's all, you know, thank you for your service. But when I wear this uniform, and she's wearing hijab, she gets quite a different reaction to that. Yeah, I mean, that's particularly for a Muslim woman, you know, wearing the hijab. You see Raphael also wears the, his uh, kufi while in uniform. They're allowed to do that indoors. You don't wear your kufi outdoors. Explain what a kufi is, just in case folks don't know. A kufi is just a, a, kufi is a skull cap, religious headgear. It, it is, and it's an identifiable religious headgear for, for Muslims. And Raphael indoors can, can wear it as part of his religious accommodation as a chaplain. Both of those things, you know, show that there's a complexity and there's, there's, there's a multiplicity of perspectives that these chaplains are, are having to hold up as they, as they go through their daily lives. You know, on base, it's one thing, off base, it's another. I think a lot of religious minorities, minorities writ large, can can identify with that. That that you're seen in you're seen in, you're seen one way in one context and one way in another context. And I think that's that's part of the universal messaging. I hope people understand that that's not we're not trying to just you know show that that that's a Muslim thing. It's a it's a thing that many people who are in mm-hmm. are in roles of leadership and and doing public service have to deal with. And where are these three chaplains today? Saleha is now a captain. And she serves in a military installation in Monterey, California, attached to the you know, Defense Language Institute. Khalid is a colonel now. He's, he's the first Muslim chaplain to make colonel. He's one of the highest ranking African-American chaplains in the entire Depart- Department of Defense. He's at CENTCOM at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. And Raphael is now a major and he is a branch chief chaplain at Joint Amendorf Richardson, which is in Anchorage, Alaska. Wow. Producer Kimberly Winston is in conversation with filmmakers David Washburn and Rosie Joffrey. The two teamed up to make Three Chaplains, a documentary airing on the PBS app and available at pbs.org. As we get back to the conversation... Producer Kimberly Winston explores what happened behind the camera over the course of filming, how making this documentary impacted their own spirituality. David, you mentioned that you are from a Jewish background, and I believe you are non-practicing. That would be correct, yeah. And Razi, you are a practicing Muslim, correct? Yes. What did you guys learn about your own spiritual identity while making this film? Razi, you, you, why don't you start? 
Um, I think, you know, for me as a, as a practicing Muslim, and, and I say that with also the caveat that I think, you know, one's, one's faith is such a journey at times, you know, it's a winding path at times. It's a, it's a roller coaster. And so I've naturally evolved and progressed like most people. I, I identify a lot with um, Khalid, Raphael, and Saliha, all three of them in different ways. I mean, I'm an immigrant from India myself, and so Saliha and I have a very immediate connection in that regard. And I got to spend a lot of time with Raphael, getting to travel with him to visit you know, his uh, family, uh, part of his family in the Dominican Republic when he was visiting them. I saw a lot of myself, and I saw a lot of the tensions that they experience, you know, I've experienced them in my own life in different ways. And I think one of the things that is going on right now with, you know, the the bombardment in Gaza, it's just brought a lot of people together. And I, I've been in community with my own Muslim community. And I'm also a part of a couple of Muslim Jewish initiatives, interfaith initiatives. And I think there's a real profound spiritual connection amongst people when we come together at a time of difficulty. Right now, I'm also thinking about in in the midst of everything going on, I I lost a good friend of mine, Sam Wall, who was a leader in in Detroit's Jewish community. She was actually the head of the downtown synagogue in Detroit. Oh my. Sadly, she lost her life due to a murder a couple of weeks ago. Her service was just so beautiful and there were dozens and dozens of Muslims there. And it really brought us closer together. I think in a, in a period where naturally there's going to be tension and disagreement and where I'm based in Detroit, there's a rich Muslim community and a rich Jewish community. And there's been a long history of working together and collaboration. And sometimes it's more robust and sometimes, you know, things quiet down a bit. A lot of difficult things have happened while we've been working on the film. We've got the Muslim ban, the pullout from Afghanistan, attacks on diversity uh, and inclusion in organizations, the military, universities, so on and so forth. Um, but one of the things that has kept me grounded is my connection to my faith and connection to my community and the various communities that I'm a part of. Part of the challenge of being a person of faith is finding that strength to get through difficult periods. And I think it's one of the reasons why we're also drawn to films like this, because this is a film about bringing people together and and bridge, building bridges, but it's also a film about faith. And so I really identify with that. And I also appreciated that we really wanted to have expressions of faith, not just from the Muslim experience. I mean, the film is centered on, on a Muslim experience, but You'll see um, baptisms taking place. You'll see uh, a montage of different services, Jewish, Catholic, um, Protestant, different services taking place to reflect the liveliness of religious life, you know, in the military, which is something that certainly I didn't know about. And David? My own relationship to the Jewish faith is, is, has had peaks and valleys over the years. Mm. And I think one thing that stayed consistent is recognition of our history as a people in the United States. And I think I bring that same awareness to, to working with Muslim storytellers, that a lot of the experiences that, that, that American Jews have gone through, American Muslims are going through. My previous film was entitled An American Mosque. It was about a uh, small town in rural California where a Pakistani-American community built a, a really beautiful, large Islamic center in the middle of farmland, and it was burned down one night. 
mysteriously and deemed a hate crime. FBI investigated. They never did catch who did it, but the film is about the, the, the effort to build this Islamic center and the interfaith healing that happened after the fire. And I, I, I pursued that in part because the synagogue I briefly attended as a boy in Sacramento was firebombed in 1999. Two white supremacists firebombed three synagogues in one night. So it was, it was really clear what had happened. The, the library at the, the Temple B'nai Israel was, was completely destroyed along with their texts. And mm. the, the sanctuary, they tried to take it all down by pouring gasoline over the, the piano that my family had donated to the synagogue. Um, I, I, I don't tell this story too often, but you know, my grandfather was in the army during World War II and he was drafted. They, they filed papers to court-martial him mm. after he had punched his staff sergeant because his staff sergeant called him an anti-Semitic slur. And I think when, the, when his commanders found out exactly what had happened, it, it didn't look good, court-martialing a American Jewish soldier who was essentially sticking up for his faith and, and mm. fighting back against anti-Semitism in Europe. And it just, it just shows kind of this repetition a bit that, that happens, particularly articulated through military service, where time and time again, minorities in this country sign up for military service, risking their lives. And, and oftentimes it is, it is, not, is not repaid with dignity and respect. We see this. We see this in the African American community in World War II. It was a real inflection point in terms of the civil rights movement, where African American GIs were serving in Europe and South and the South Pacific, fighting against fascist ideology, white supremacist ideology, and yet they were experiencing deep inequalities at home. And I think some of the some of the background to this film, I think, ties into that narrative that if we are going to stand up for religious freedom as a core principle of this country, that means religious freedom for everybody. And it doesn't just mean, oh, you can worship here in the United States freely and free of violence. It means, it means truly accepting people outside of just the religious context, but as equals in all other arenas, including in the military and other parts of leadership. The really special scene for, for me in the film is when several young people are, are converting to Islam while in uniform. You know, I, I didn't, I filmed one of those scenes the, the very, I think, first or second day I was on an Air Force base. In order to become a Muslim, it, it consists of two statements. The first statement being that I testify that there is none to be worshipped but God, and I testify that Muhammad is the messenger of God. By making those two statements, this enters you into the fold of Islam, in this fold of submitting unto God. Right, And then the obligation is to follow the Qur'an and the prophetic example. Because when a person becomes a Muslim, that enters that individual into a state of duty and responsibilities. You have duties and responsibilities to Almighty God. You have duties and responsibilities to your fellow human beings. You ready to repeat after me? Yes, All right. Ashhadu. Ashhadu. An la. An la. Ilaha. Ilaha. Il, Il Allah. Allah. Wa Ashhadu Ashhadu Anna Anna Muhammadan Muhammadan Rasulullah Rasulullah Takbir 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 Allahu Akbar Takbir Allahu Akbar Takbir For me the for it was a real example of how there are moments 
where we where we do embrace this religious freedom for everybody. And many viewers would expect that wouldn't occur. So it creates it creates some dissonance in viewers' minds when they see this. And I think that dissonance for me is where when people's imaginations are expanded and and learning really can happen. What is it like to be releasing this film at this time? And what do you hope the film will say to us? This film started more than five years ago. So we were filming during a previous president's Muslim travel ban. We were editing during the current president's pullout from Afghanistan and now promoting the film during this most recent conflict in Gaza and Israel. Each one of those moments was reframing the film in a new way each time. Although we are releasing it now, uh, there was no intention to have it in dialogue with these current events. But I think it's interesting how one thing I think remains the same across all of those current events, that as filmmakers, we believe that storytelling has the power to bring people together and to increase understanding. And when we're talking about the fundamental uh, work of interreligious dialogue, it is storytelling and it is sharing perspectives. You know, we can't tell people what to do or what to think, but we can present, and I think um, we believe it's an imperative to present more nuanced and humanizing portrayals of, of Muslims here in the United States and worldwide, particularly Muslims in leadership. We don't, we don't just need to see people in positions of, of, of vulnerability and pain. I think that also creates a, another narrative, which I don't think we want to see. But I think when we more deeply connect with people across religious lines, when they are in pain and they are vulnerable, I think we, we, can, we can extend our hearts to them. And that, that goes across the board. So there could be another, there could be some other big current event that happens as we take this film around the country. The next two, three years, we're going to be doing screenings for free at places of worship, interfaith organizations, universities, even within the Department of Defense. And so we welcome people to collaborate with us to hold these screenings and um, foster this interreligious dialogue. Razi? Yeah, I think, I think there's a real power in faith to bring people together as well. It's one of the things that we see in the film. There's a scene where we're experiencing the Christchurch shooting, which took place in New Zealand in 2019, sadly. And, you know, our, our perspective is through Raphael's, who's hearing about the news and is attending an um, interfaith vigil at a mosque in Denver, where you have speakers from all different backgrounds. There's a, uh, a Christian pastor um, who's giving a talk and just reminding people that this is time for all people of faiths to come together and speak up for human rights and speak up for each other. And it's this really beautiful scene, but I'm also really drawn to the visual where it's like you have people of all different backgrounds that are coming together because of this tragedy, which was experienced by one community in a small country on the other side of the planet, but has reverberations around the world. And the one thing that can really bring people together is faith. And I think that's ultimately one of the messages of the film. And I want that message conveyed both as a filmmaker, as a producer, but also as an activist, which is a big part of my work in bringing people together. And at the end of the day, building understanding between misunderstood communities. And I hope that we're successful in that mission with the film. Director David Washburn and producer Rosie Joffrey join producer Kimberly Winston to discuss the documentary Three Chaplains from Independent Lens. 
currently airing now on pbs.org and streamed online on YouTube, made possible by support from the Arthur Vinings Davis Foundation. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. And a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>